grounded in. It's certainly about connecting with one another, but this is primarily about us practicing community in a biblical sense. So that doesn't mean just connecting with one another. That means practicing community biblically. So I've, I've heard from a handful of you that uh, you went through that first week of the practice guide, and it was really helpful for you as a community to start to dig a little bit deeper. So I, I say that to say, if you didn't get to do that yet, either because you just didn't, you don't have a community yet, you're kind of forming that, or you're stepping into a community group, or your community group like ours kind of got bogged down in the first half and didn't get to the second half or whatever, um, you, you don't have to stay on schedule. Like you can do this five-week series in like 20 weeks. It's fine. You don't have to. If you didn't do it last week, you can do last week, this week, and this week, next week, if you followed all of that. So it's not time sensitive. You can work your way through it. I think these are really important tools for us to learn to be the community together. So I want to encourage you to really press into that. So last week, we looked at the idea that Jesus has invited us to be a community. And that invitation to community, unlike, and this is so different than our 21st century Western way of looking at it, it's not grounded in a doctrinal statement or a certain set of beliefs. It's grounded in a willingness to follow Jesus. That's it. So the invitation to community then and now is a willingness, a willingness to step into the way of Jesus and trusting the Holy Spirit to continue to shape us and mold us. So we looked last week at the idea that Jesus invited people into community because he himself lived in community, chose to live in community. And that community was based on his sacrifice and modeled for us sacrificial living with one another that we would sacrifice ourselves for one another. And Romans 12 is really a picture of that. Uh, We're going to dive a little bit more deeply into that idea today as we step into Romans 12. And then uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to come back again to Romans 12. There's really so much on, we could do a a whole fall series on Romans 12. There's so much in here. Uh, We're going to really press into what it means to sacrifice for one another. So I'm going to ask you to listen. Taylor's going to come and read for us. Romans 12, verses 1 to 16, and just allow the truth to wash over you as you uh, hear this invitation to community. Thank you, Taylor. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I hear those words, and I, I know that not only I want to be part of a community like that, the world desires a community like that. We want to be people who learn to love one another well. And so, Jesus, would you shape us, break down the preconceived ideas that would get in the way, and instead invite us into a life that is given to the honor of one another and to your glory. And so Jesus, guide us. I I pray that you would guide my words, that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, they would penetrate our hearts. And God, we desire that you would change us. And so open our eyes and shape our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to emotionally place yourself in three different scenarios. I'm going to paint the scenarios for you. I want you to feel what you might feel in this scenario. First scenario is this. It's a special occasion. You're planning a big meal, and you've invited some friends and family members to come and be a part of that meal with you. 
Because you've planned out the meal, it doesn't really strike you as odd that when you invite them, they didn't offer to bring anything or to help in any way. They just said they would be there. And so as they gather, you put the big spread on, and they're all sitting around and enjoying a meal together. You serve dessert. They finish dessert. And as they finish, the conversation hits a lull. They push their plates to the middle, and they wave goodbye and leave. They never thank you. They never clean up anything. They never offer to help with anything. They just leave. How do you feel? Now, you invited them, right? You, your plan was to serve them. You got to serve them, and they just walked out. What's that emotion? Scenario number two. You're in a store, and there's a single mom, or at least it looks like a single mom, with a six- or seven- or eight-year-old boy full of energy, as six- or seven- or eight-year-old boys are. And this boy is loud and a bit obnoxious and uh, causing a bit of a uh, destruction, as six- or seven- or eight-year-old boys do. Um, and the mom is clearly exasperated, and the rest of the people in the store are doing that thing where you're looking but not looking, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, oh, like that kind of thing, right? And the mom finally just can't take it anymore, and, but firmly but lovingly grabs this boy's arm and pulls him over to the cart and says, you need to be quiet. And the boy sticks his finger up at her and curses at her. Mom, how, what do you say? How do you feel? Scenario number three, it's 1987, and you're in an art gallery that is displaying some of the most cutting-edge art from all around the world. You're seeing uh, paintings and photography and sculpture, and as you walk around the corner, you see a large photograph of a very detailed crucifix, and that crucifix is submerged in a jar of urine. Andre Serrano's painting, Piss Christ. How do you feel? The challenge that we have in America is that we don't have good words for how we feel in those things, those scenarios. The word that we're looking for is that we feel dishonored. We feel that we have been dishonored, that the mom has been dishonored, that Jesus, the, 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 uh, the holy, has been dishonored. By the way, whether that was uh, Jesus as a Christian or whether that was an image of the prophet Muhammad or a statue of Buddha, we would feel the same thing. Because there's a sense of honor and decorum that it should be there that just isn't there. And when that line is crossed, we feel this sense of, uh, that's not right. But in our country, in our culture, we struggle to put words to it because even though 70 to 80% of the globe lives in what sociologists call an honor-shame culture, we are in a culture that doesn't live based on honor. In fact, the argument could be made that we have created a culture that's actually grounded in the opposite of honor. For us, honor, if it exists at all, exists around a few honor-based holidays. So um, the, the most prominent of them is Mother's Day. You know, you honor your mom on Mother's Day. You call your mom and you say, Mom, happy Mother's Day. I just want to thank you because literally I would not be alive without you, right? I love the Mother's Day card. It's my favorite one that says, Mom, our relationship started with me being a pain. I'm sorry, so not, nothing's really changed. You know, that's really, it's just, that, that's, the way, that's the way we handle moms, right? It's just like, oh, I honor you for five minutes back to the rest of my day. 
Dads, for Father's Day, it's, it's even less. Uh, the, the Father's Day mantra is typically, all I want for Father's Day is to play golf on Mother's Day. Just leave me alone, right? Uh, we, we have Labor Day this weekend. We're going to honor uh, those who are working by being off tomorrow. And then on Tuesday, we're going to do twice as much work as we typically would do because we have to catch up from what we were supposed to do on Monday, right? That's how we honor people who work. Uh, Memorial Day and Veterans Day, two holidays that exist to honor uh, people who are very worthy of honor, and we honor them typically by putting a flag up and grilling meat. That's kind of the way that we honor. And I'm not opposed to any of those things. I'm simply saying we're not good at honoring in our country. That's not really our strong point. We don't really have a good sense of how to honor. And that's especially true in the church. I was talking to David and Ty uh, as they've gotten back from Thailand, and there's this really fascinating distinction in the Southeast Asian culture versus the U.S. culture. On day one as a pastor in Southeast Asia, it's like you have been a faithful pastor for 30 years. You are honored at this incredibly high, almost an embarrassing, for an American, a very embarrassing level, where you're, you're completely honored, and as long as you don't mess it up, that never changes. Where here... That's just not the case. That's not the way that you approach me, and that's not the way I approach you. We just live in a different kind of world. We don't understand how to honor within the church, and yet in the middle of Romans 12, there's this line where Paul says in verse 10, outdo one another with honor. Don't just honor one another. That would be a, that would be a big step for us, but outdo one another with honor. What's that look like? Well, I think in order to get there, we have to first define and try to understand what honor even is. In a society that misses it so completely, what's the concept of honor? What's it all about? So we're going to look at the concept of honor, and then we're going to look at the opposite of honor. Because um, we tend to see honor and dishonor, but I think there's a more nuanced way for us to see the kind of culture that we live in. So the opposite of honor. And then finally, what it means to choose to honor one another. What's it, choose, what's it mean to choose to live as a, an honor-based community, a way that we honor one another? So let's start with honor as a concept. Um, the, the Greek word honor is time. Can you say time? There you go. You know as much Greek as I do now. That's great. Excellent. Um, so time is, uh, or it could be timi, depending on how you accent the E with a little line at the top of it. Um, it the, the idea of time is actually a financial word. So uh, when you look at all of the translations, you're going to get honor a few times, a handful of times. You're also going to get things like cost and worth. So remember that. That's going to be a really important idea. Honor is expressing the value, the worth of something, almost like a, a financial exchange. To honor something means that. So I went through and did a bit of a word study. I'm not going to give you all of them, but I'm going to give you kind of some highlights so we can get a sense of uh, what honor is like. So um, the first place that this kind of honor, Time, shows up is actually in the Old Testament. I know that that was actually in Hebrew, but this verse from Exodus chapter 20 is actually quoted in Ephesians 6, so we see that word Time in there. Part of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you probably learned it as a kid like I did. Um, I think they do this on purpose for like second graders because we need it. Uh, you probably learned obey your mother and father, but it actually is honor your father and mother. That word time, value, express the worth of your parents, your father and mother, not just as a child, but throughout your life. Honor your parents. 
Then we get Romans chapter 12, uh, that we would honor one another, outdo one another in honor. Then we move to Romans chapter 13. This gets a little bit tricky for us, because in Romans 13, it's going to say in no uncertain terms that the authorities that are over us, the civic authorities that are over us, are to be honored because they've been put in place by God. Some of you just breathe real deep, just relax, it's going to be okay. Um, and, And we read that, and we think, like, yeah, but Paul did not understand what we're going through, right? Um, and that's true. Paul didn't understand what we're going through. I would offer that we don't probably understand all that Paul was going through either. Um, most historians date Romans to the time when Caesar Nero was reigning. I don't know if you know a lot about Caesar Nero. One really fascinating little tidbit about Caesar Nero is he liked to take Christians, dip them in oil, and then dip them in wax, impale them on a stake, and light them on fire to light his garden. And we're like, but socialism, like seriously? You you get what I'm saying? I'm not trying to downplay what's going on in the world around us. I'm just saying, I think Paul understood, right? And, And in the midst of that, he said, honor those who are in authority over you. He understood the sovereignty of God enough to say he can handle this. Honor those who have been put in authority over you. Um, Let's move to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read this one to you just so that you understand that it's coming straight from the Word of God. This is verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'm just going to leave that one with you. That's, that's good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible, guys. Come on. Anyway, uh, go to one more. Um, in the book of First Peter, Peter says, this is a, this is a fascinating concept. This is in uh, chapter 3. He's speaking to husbands, and he says this in verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, some of you got stuck on weaker vessel and just were like, hold on, right? I don't have time to go through all the cultural stuff right now. If you have questions, come and talk to me. It's fine. We'll work, work our way through it. But here's what's fascinating. Peter says, husbands, honor your wives or your prayers won't be heard. So in some way that we can't fully get our arms around, there's a tie between the way that we honor one another in our closest human relationships and the spiritual authority that we have as we come before the Lord. That's fascinating. Maybe the place that honor is seen the most clearly is in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you're familiar with the, the refrains of Revelation, whether you believe that is a future occurrence or as I do believe it is a contemporaneous occurrence, what's happening right now. The, the repeating refrain of all of humankind, uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation, speaking before the throne is blessing and honor and glory and power over and over again. Blessing and honor and glory and power. And, and, and there's this, this um, sense in which those things all are synonyms, But there's also a slight distinction. So I I, I think glory and honor are words that we can get kind of tripped up in. What's the the difference? And I think it's really important for us to get if we're going to understand how to honor one another. Glory, um, honor we said is a financial word. Glory is a weight word. It's it's, um, what is inherent in that thing. So if something has glory... It's, it's seen to be weighty, weighed down with glory, and that weight is inherent in the thing. 
And so uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, makes this statement about glory. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So, so what Lewis is saying is glory is inherent in that thing, whether you choose to recognize that glory or not. That, that's vitally important for us to get because glory is something that God has, whether or not we attribute honor to him because of that glory. Does that make sense? So that, that's a significant thing. Lewis is going to go on to say in his essay, The Weight of Glory, that, that we all, and I'm going to use slightly different language than Lewis did, we all have a bit of glory ourselves. What Lewis says is, you've never, never met a, an ordinary human, an ordinary person. All that you have met, all that I have met, are eternal creatures, again, this is my words, not Lewis's, that contain glory within them. That there's a bit of glory in us that um, we will ultimately, eternally, either be more horrific than we can imagine or more beautiful than we can comprehend. And if we could see that, and we could see that our interaction with one another is moving one another closer to one of those two eternal destinies, we would honor one another because we see the glory in one another. Do you see the distinction? So glory is what is innate, innate in us. Honor is what is uh, recognized about that thing that's in us. And what Lewis says, and I think the Bible will affirm again and again, is not only are we made in the image of God, but we're made so in the image of God that we contain something worthy of honor, even when we have uh, distinct disagreements with one another, even when we wrestle with one another. Easy way to understand it. Um, if this morning... LeBron James had taken a plane from L.A. or Cleveland or Tahiti or wherever in the world he is. Uh, I don't know if you—LeBron James plays basketball, for those of you who don't know. He's, like, good. Anyway, um, if LeBron James walked in, um, first of all, you'd all notice because he's, like, 6'9 or 6'10 and, like, you know, massive. Like, you'd, you'd all know right away that, wow, that's not the normal dude that's here, right? Uh, so he'd come in, and he'd sit down, and he's just, like, singing along, and he's listening. And, and what would happen is that there would start to be this whisper that would go around. Hey, hey, that's LeBron James. Like, can you believe LeBron James is here? Like, what's he doing here? And then after the service, there'd be this, like, little huddle around LeBron, and we'd be like, do I call you LeBron or Mr. James? Like, I, I don't know how to, like, what, what do I, and we'd have this conversation, right? Like, wow, what are you doing here? Who? We honor this idea that this person is seen in a certain way in the world around us. If we're to outdo one another in honor, there should be a sense that as we walk in, we're like, oh, you know, Missy's here. Missy's here today. Oh my goodness. I can't believe Missy's here. That's so, like, I need to, like, I need to go talk to her. Like, I need to go see. And it's not just like, it, it could be, it could be Missy or it could be like, Taylor's here. I haven't got to meet Taylor yet. Like, wow, I need to go. Like, like there's, some, there's something inherent in each one of us that's worthy of honor. And so what Paul's saying is we should outdo one another in honor by, uh, by seeking to honor one another as we interact with one another. The problem with that is that we don't just live in a culture that doesn't understand honor. I would go as far as to say we live in a culture that celebrates the opposite of honor. So what's the opposite of honor? 
Well, you could say dishonor, and it wouldn't be wrong, but I think a more nuanced way to understand the opposite of honor is contempt. We have contempt for the people around us. Um, Maybe the clearest example of this, and one of the most heartbreaking, are U.S. soldiers that have had extended times overseas. They've had long tours of duty over the last five, six, seven, eight years. And they've come back to the U.S., and there's this stark recognition that we are enemies with one another as much as they are in the presence of the enemy in different places around the world. We have, uh, we're no longer together in the way that we historically have been together. I don't, know, I, I don't know if you know this. On your money, there's this Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. You know, you know that? I've looked at that. I'm like, what in the heck is that? Anybody know what that means? It's big, like, uh, trivia for today. E pluribus unum. What's that? Well, oh, look at that. Very nice. Very nice. That was like, that was your Latin, like, early on in uh, yeah, whatever. Who knows? Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, out of many, one. Soldiers have come back and said, it's fascinating. It looks like we've become the opposite. I left one, and now I've come back to many. Out of one, there has become many. Sebastian Younger, in his book, Tribe, speaking particularly about the North American context, says this, people speak with incredible contempt about, depending on their views, the rich or the poor, the educated, the foreign-born, the president, or the entire U.S. government. It's a level of contempt that is usually reserved for enemies in wartime, except that now it's applied to our fellow citizens. Now listen to this. Unlike criticism, contempt is particularly toxic because it assumes a moral superiority in the speaker. Contempt is often directed at people who have been excluded from a group or declared unworthy of its benefits. That idea of moral superiority, I think, is really key to understanding the kind of culture that we have uh, kind of emerged to be. When we talk about contempt, we're not simply talking about some expression of anger or frustration or disagreement. We're talking about a level of superiority that we feel when we interact with the world around us. And so uh, Robert Solomon is a philosophy professor at the University of Texas, and and he says that uh, we express anger through three different kinds of expressions depending on social status. So if you have anger towards somebody who's clearly a superior, you would express that through the emotion of resentment. You resent someone who's above you. If you're a peer with someone, you're simply angry with them. Anger is expressed through anger. But if you believe that you're superior to someone, you have contempt for them. And contempt is more and more the definition of the culture around us. Philosopher David Hume says that contempt is, uh, happens when we isolate one aspect of someone and we make it the whole. You believe this, therefore you must be this. You, you act this way, you express yourself this way, therefore I understand everything I need to know about you. Modern sociologists uh, in the last five or six years have used the idea of uh, the myth of pure evil. Basically, this idea that there's a binary world and people are either good or bad. Rather than understanding that we're all a mixed bag of all kinds of stuff, the, the particularly social media world that we live in isolates people to evil or good, 
And this idea that there is a myth of pure good and a myth of pure evil, and people fit into one category or the other. Uh, Let me make all this theoretical stuff practical for you. Think about, this is not a political statement, this is purely a social exercise. Think about the way that you voted in the last election, and now think about the people who voted the opposite way in the last election. How do you feel about those people? Do you just think like, those people are probably, they're just so educated and enlightened, and there's just so many wonderful, charming things about them. And I know we disagree on this one little thing, but I wish I could just sit down with them and understand because there's probably so much that they have to teach me, right? That's exactly what you were all thinking, right? Like, oh, absolutely, the people who voted that way, they're, they're wonderful people. What, it's funny now, but do you know it's only 10 or 15 years ago that we really actually thought that way. We really thought, I wonder why people voted like that. I would have voted the other way, huh? But now it's not like that. Now there's this separation that I would define as contempt. We look down on, we feel superior to people who see things that I can't believe people would think like that. I can't believe they'd be duped like that. I can't believe that they're not understanding all of the facts. They're not enlightened like I am as I understand the world. And in a very strange way, those separations, that act of contempt, has actually brought us together, not in community per se, but in almost anti-community. Senator Ben Sass in his book, Them, writes this, Our isolation has deprived us of healthy local tribes with whom we share values and goals and ways of life that uplift us. And so we fall into anti-tribes, defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. It's a sorry substitute for real belonging, but it's better than nothing. Listen to what he says. We might not have much in the way of community, but at least we aren't as ludicrous as those sanctimonious liberals on MSNBC or as absurd as those blowhard conservatives on Fox. There's something comforting in joining people of a similar mindset, the we, to denounce them. No one wants to sit alone. It's fascinating because what Sass is saying is actually what the Bible tells us. It is not good for man to be alone. We have a longing to unite with one another. We have an innate desire for community. But in a world that's marked by contempt, our community or our anti-community begins to be formed around those for whom we have contempt rather than based on honoring one another who are made in the image of God. So what do we do with that? We're in a world where contempt is literally the air that we breathe. That, I, I, said, uh, I said at the beginning, this is a, a statement that we make as we gather together, because I look around and I recognize we're coming from different perspectives, and yet we're sitting in the same room, unified together. There's a statement that's being made. How do we live that way? How do we choose honor in the midst of a society, a culture of contempt? Well, I want to talk about two things that happen when we choose honor, and then three very quick ways that we do. First thing that happens when we choose honor is that we open ourselves up to a flow of blessing rather than cut ourselves off from blessing. Uh, Go, if you're in Romans chapter 12, go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. 
There's a story of Jesus that most theologians lay out as the most, uh, uh, the, the, the clearest expression of contempt within the life of Jesus. Um, let me just read for you, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on Sabbath, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, now listen to the progression. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think it's notable that a bad day for Jesus is just healing some people. Like, that's, like, whatever. Like, that's just, eh, no real power here. I'll just heal a few of you and go home. <laughs> like, I'd be up for that. Anyway, um, so a couple things that we see. What, what happens when Jesus is shown contempt? The same thing that happens when all intelligent people are shown contempt He doesn't try to argue with them. He doesn't try to reason with them. He doesn't try to explain with them because he recognizes you cannot win this argument. And so he separates himself from them. What happens when we have a culture of contempt is that we separate from one another more and more. And what happens when we separate? The flow of blessing is cut off. Jesus comes to this people full of blessing in potential form. He's carrying with him spiritual authority. And through their contempt, that authority is shut off. When we honor one another, we open ourselves up to the spiritual blessing that one another are carrying. You know, in Romans chapter 12, there's this flow through the spiritual gifts, the way that God has gifted us through his spirit, into the way that we honor one another in community. It's a logical flow because what Paul's saying is when you live in this kind of community, you're opened up to this kind of blessing. But when you live in contempt with one another, you shut it off. You cut off that blessing. When we honor one another, we unite around what's most important and we open ourselves up to spiritual blessing. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. When we honor one another, we bring out the best in each other. Now that may seem like kind of a, a soft, kind of squishy thing, but, but uh, the book of Proverbs makes it really clear that the power of our tongue is speaking life and death. And when we honor people and when we hold one another in contempt, it comes out through our mouths. When we, honor, when we truly honor one another, we will speak in ways that speak that honor to one another. And when we have contempt for one another, if we don't speak those words of contempt to them directly, we will very quickly speak them to other people. And so what happens is when we speak those words of blessing, when we speak words of honor, people begin to step into the destiny for which God has created them. So if I am interacting with you and I begin to see in you the beauty of what God's doing in you, regardless of the fact that we may disagree on all kinds of things, if I learn to see you with honor, I begin to speak words of blessing into your life. So that can happen at any stage. So that may be 
interacting with David and speaking words of blessing and honor into his life and speaking destiny into his life, or maybe with Mary as, as she's like starting to form up and I'm starting to speak words of blessing and honor and destiny into her life. But see, here's what's key. Most of us don't see that ourselves. We need someone to speak those words into our lives. There's, there's, this, uh, there's a bunch of fascinating studies. We don't have time to get into all the scientific, scientific evidence. But literally, people are smarter. Their IQ goes up when you speak blessing over them. They actually test higher when they have people around them who are affirming them. And the opposite is true. When there are people around you who are tearing you down, who are speaking cursing, the IQ goes down. It's a crazy phenomenon. We actually impact the journey that people are on when we honor one another. And so just imagine a community of honor that is speaking honor to one another, choosing to outdo one another in honor, begins to be this upward spiral that, uh, that moves us into the potential for which we're created. And when we live in contempt with one another, the inverse is true, and the downward spiral happens. So how do we get there in, in the midst of a culture that's so different than that? Three things I want to tell you. The first one is this. The cultural reality is contempt. So we have to choose to retrain our mind and emotions differently than that. Uh, easier said a little bit more simply, your default will be contempt. When people don't agree with you, your natural default will just be to hold them in contempt. And so you need to have an alarm in your brain. You need to retrain your brain. You need to choose to say, I'm honoring that person, not because I agree with everything, but because I see the image of God in them. I'm choosing to honor them. So there's a mental retraining that has to be a part of it. And it's just, it's just telling yourself the truth as to what God says about the people around you. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Uh, you probably know this in your own life. It is much harder to have contempt for someone that you actually know. I don't mean that you like know their name, but I mean you know them, and you begin to know all the different aspects of them, and all of a sudden, they're not isolated into that one thing that Hume talks about, where we isolate one factor and uh, make it the whole. The, people are complex, and so people disagree with you on some things, and agree with you on other things, and you're going to think they're right about some stuff and wrong about other stuff. And if you're willing to have a real relationship, you're going to find that you learn from everybody around you if you're willing to get to know them. Now, I recognize this is a community, a church community, that's large. Over the course of three gatherings this weekend, uh, this is a holiday weekend, so maybe we're going to hit, I don't know, 300, 350 that'll come through here on a normal weekend. Maybe it's four or 450. And, and like, that's a lot of people. And you probably don't know them all. I'm still trying. I don't even know them all. Like, we're working on it. So I, I get that you can't know everybody in community, but if you really get to know 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 and you get to find out that they're multifaceted people who disagree with you in some ways and agree with you in other ways, and that people are not the caricature by which they're portrayed in the world around you, you can all of a sudden, with a logical consistency, assume the best about the other 300 that you don't know. You can begin to live in a way that says, I don't know, but I bet I really like them. I don't know, but I bet even though I disagree with them, there's some things that I can learn from. We can begin to choose honor 
even before we get to know people simply because we do know people. So one of the ways that we do this is retraining our mind. One of the ways that we do this is really getting to know one another. And the third one, I want to take you back in Romans 12 to the first verse of Romans 12. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, the first 12 chapters form uh, this, um, man, incredibly cohesive and beautiful argument about what Jesus has done for all of us as the people of God. And then verse 1, even the first half of verse 1 of Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, and stop there, everything else flows out of the mercies of God. Why do we honor one another? This is going to feel weird to you, but remember the definitions, because Jesus has honored you. Honor meaning recognized worth and value, expressed worth and value. What is the cross if it is not an expression of how much you're worth? Jesus has honored you. And because he has honored you, and because he's honored the person beside you and across the room from you, and the person who loves Jesus and deeply disagrees with you on some things that you find to be very foundational and important, we can choose to honor one another. And we do it not based on our desire to honor, not based on our, our, our gut effort to read Romans 12 and try to live like that in community. That's going to last till the middle of the week. You just can't, you can't pull that off. But if it is in view of the mercies of God, if we regularly come back to the reality that even though I am messed up and broken, I've been honored by Jesus. He sees the value in me, the worth in me. And he has identified me through his cross as someone worthy of being saved. Jesus came to live the life that you couldn't pull off. I can't pull off. I can't live the way I'm supposed to and neither can you. And so Jesus comes and lives that life. And then he chooses to die the death that I deserve and you deserve. And he chooses it because you're worth it. The writer of the Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It, it wasn't just a, like, I have to do this because the Father sent me, I don't have a choice. It was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. And so what right do we have to not honor one another? When Jesus has said, not only have I honored you, but I've honored all these people in the room with you, regardless of what they believe about whatever it is that you're concerned about right now. Jesus honors us. And so we develop a community where we honor one another. When this happens the church becomes a countercultural force in the world. When we honor one another not based on some cultural value or some false position, but when we honor one another based on the intrinsic value that Jesus has placed in one another, we begin to act in a way that makes a dramatic impact on the world around us. So when we become a community of honor, it's literally transformative in the world. And so I want to invite you into that. 
I want us to become that kind of community. We're all, we have the raw materials. We already disagree with each other. It's great. So we're, we're really in a good place. Like we're ready to be a good community of honor because we already have deep disagreements about the way that we see the world around us. Great. We become a beautiful model of honor when we choose to honor one another anyway. And we do that through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so when we come to the communion table, we come to remember what Jesus has done for us. We come as the guest of honor at a table where Jesus chooses to honor us. And we come and honor his sacrifice by honoring one another.